You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Last spring, a woman named Marsha Linehan was in a counseling session when her client threw the question back at her. And he asked her, are you one of us? Now, she tried to dodge the question because she has a story that she had kept hidden. But what you need to know is Dr. Marsha Linehan is a UW professor and she is a psychologist and she is an innovator. She created one of the most effective therapies in use today for people who struggle with destructive, self-destructive behaviors. It's called um, DBT, Dialectical Behavior Therapy. And uh, it's used around the world. But she has held her cards close to her chest for many, many years until this past summer, Hartford, Connecticut, she told an audience, and then the New York Times picked up on it and told her story through an interview, which was absolutely, she herself had struggled for year, decades with self-destructive behavior. Uh, she had struggled with cutting, hurting herself, banging her head. She had gone through horrendous and unhelpful therapies. And that time, several electroshock therapies. She had been left in a, an asylum all alone for many years. And uh, she just really depressed suicidal attempts and tendencies. And when she's in this counseling session, she's looking now, she realizes she's got bare sleeves. And maybe the uh, client has noticed the uh, distant burn marks, the like long since healed cut marks and, and welts on her arm. And so she's, she's thinking, maybe on to me, she deflects. And she says, you mean, have I suffered? And then her client said, no, Marcia. I mean one of us, like us. Because if you were, it would give all of us so much hope. And that, my friends, is the power of authenticity. When you open up your life, you open up your hope to another human being. And I want to suggest to you, that's what your neighbors need from you. Also this summer, The Atlantic ran an article about a group of researchers who were interviewing college students. They were looking for atheists, and they wanted to ask one simple question. Tell us about your journey to unbelief. And these college students surprised those interviewers because there are a couple things they found. The first thing is that, that almost all of them came to unbelief out of an experience of Christianity. It was a reaction against Christianity, not Islam, not Buddhism, Christianity. They had been in the church. And the other thing that they had seen was that their experience of Christianity, they told these interviewers, seemed superficial. This was a community that couldn't seem to tolerate differences, couldn't seem to tolerate questions, didn't talk a lot about the culture, science, the big questions of life. Just didn't seem real. And what they most wanted, in a word, was authenticity. I want to tell you, the people around you, they don't need you dressed in your Sunday best. They don't need your polished testimonies. They don't need your finger-wagging morality. They don't need your pat answers. What they need to know is, are you one of us? And have you found a hope that's real? And will it work in my life too? 
See, that's why this is important. I know none of you say, oh, George, I'd really rather be inauthentic. We all are for authenticity. But I want you to see that this is a practice that's so powerful for a church that's called to share hope in Jesus Christ. So how do we do it? Let's look at Peter. First Peter chapter 1, verses six, 13 through 16. And if you're looking at uh, the Pew Bible there, flip over to page 983. If you're not, hit Hebrews and then turn right uh, past James. And First Peter is there. And if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read God's word aloud together. First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. When you're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord so that you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy... Be holy yourselves in all your conduct, for it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Two things I want to talk about this morning with you. First, a way to see yourself. Secondly, a way to relate to your neighbor. Let's begin number one with a way to see yourself. Here I want you to see that you follower of Jesus Christ, are are secured by grace. You're secured by grace, and that's how you ought to see yourself. This week I was talking to a friend about what I was going to be preaching on this Sunday, and I said, it's authenticity. He said, oh, authenticity. He said, you know the hardest person in the world to be authentic with? It's yourself. And that is true. And so if you're going to have a good answer to the question, are you one of us, should your neighbor ever ask you, you're going to have to be able to know who you are, right? You're going to have to know something about yourself. And so this is why Peter begins right here by challenging his congregation to think. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Now, if you look at the little footnote, um, my text has a little letter C there on the word action. Go down to the bottom of the page, and you'll see that the Greek, more literally, could be translated, gird up the loins of your mind. That's kind of a funny, that's kind of, it should make you laugh. Gird up the loins of your mind. Okay, your loins is your midsection. And, uh, you know, in the ancient world, they wore these long flowing robes like we do at the 830 service. And um, they're not really well suited to, like, climbing steps, going up the Larson Hall or running or any kind of engagement with the world around you. And so what they would do is they would gird them up, which means you'd bend down and you'd grab a couple of folds and you'd tuck it into your belt. That's girding your loins for action. Now, but what Paul, uh, Peter is talking about, here isn't uh, your robes. He's not talking about exposing your legs. That's too authentic. He's talking about girding the, the loins of your mind. This is thinking. I want you to think really clearly. And I think he's suggesting, if you look at the context, think about yourself in a way that leads you into engagement with the people around you fruitfully. Now, I want to suggest that naturally, you and I, you don't tend to see ourselves very clearly. We don't really know all of who we are. And I want to introduce you to a concept. Some of you are familiar with it. It's called the Johari window. 
And we'll put it up on the screen behind me. This is the Johari window. It's created by two UCLA guys, uh, Joseph Loft and Harry Ingram. And I guess they couldn't decide who to name it after, so they put Joseph and Harry, and they came up with Johari. And so that's what it is. So they're friendly people. You can just kind of tell by the name of it. But basically, if you put what you know and don't know about yourself on one axis and cross it over another axis about what people around you know and don't know about you, you get these four quadrants, the Johari window, four panes. And let's just start with the upper left. This is the open box. This is where uh, we find the stuff that you know about and that others know about you. That's the open box. That's where authenticity happens, okay? But below that is the hidden box. This is where you know something about yourself, but you haven't disclosed it to the people around you. So there's, there's, there's a little bit of a hide. This is not a bad thing. It's important sometimes to hide, to be private. Um, but that's what goes in that box. The third box is the upper right-hand box here. This is the blind box. And this is interesting. This is where uh, there's something that your neighbor knows about you that you don't know about yourself. Okay, we all have a blind. We don't perceive ourselves in the same way that other people perceive us all the time, and that's where that stuff goes. And then finally, the lower right quadrant is the unknown box. This is where we find stuff that I don't know about and you don't know about it, but it's true of me. Okay, the Johari window, we're going to come back to this in, in a minute, but before that image goes away, I just want you to notice something. We don't know ourselves really well. Well, let me ask you two questions. First of all, how well do you think you know yourself? And secondly, how much do you accept of what you know about yourself? How much do you accept what you see in your life? This week I read a a really good book called David, uh, by a man named David Benner. It's called The Gift of Being Yourself. Not a long book, but packed with good stuff. And here's what David Benner writes. He says, genuinely transformational knowing of self always involves encountering and embracing previously unwelcomed parts of self. Well, we tend to think of ourselves as a single unified self, what I, what we call I, he says, what we call I is really a, and catch this phrase, a family of many part selves. That in itself is not a particular problem. The problem lies in the fact that many of these part selves are unknown to us, even though they're usually known to others. We remain blissfully oblivious of their existence. In Benner's framework, what happens is when we're young, there are parts of ourselves that we're uncomfortable with, so we begin to hide them. We project an ideal. It's the person we really want to be, and we start to pretend and play those roles. And the problem is that it's easy for a role to become an identity. That's what he calls the dark side. Because all of a sudden, you don't have good perception of who you really are. Peter has done this. One of the great things about reading the two letters that Peter wrote in the New Testament is it's, it's, it's Peter having lived long enough to be able to reflect on Peter, to be able to give us his wisdom. What was that story in the Gospels really all about? What was it like to be you? And Peter's such a rich character. He has experienced a shift in identity. And now he says, I want you to think very carefully about your own identity. And he invites us to the same shift. Remember Peter. This is in some ways the climax of his life. How does Peter see himself? Well, uh, go back to the night that Jesus was betrayed. 
in that scene, all four gospel writers tell us Peter does the unthinkable. I don't know what the unthinkable is for you, but I know what Peter did when he deserted Jesus, that for him was the unthinkable. Because Peter sees himself as a person, above all else, who's loyal. And think about Peter, and think about how he sees himself and how all the other disciples see himself. They think, yeah, Peter, he's impetuous. Yeah, he's strong-willed. Yeah, he's uh, got a fiery personality. He's all these wonderful things, but he's nothing if not loyal. When Peter's in, he's in. He'll give you his house. He'll fight for you. He'll step out of the boat and walk across the water. Peter will do whatever he needs to do to be loyal, to be with you. And so when Jesus says to Peter, I want to tell you guys, he's talking to all the disciples in the upper room, you're all going to desert me tonight. Peter is having none of it. He won't accept that. He says, absolutely, not me. They'll all desert you. I'll follow you wherever, to prison or to die, wherever. He, all, he, he insists because that's his core identity. That's how he sees himself. There is no Peter without loyalty. And then, of course, the rooster crows three times and Peter has done the unthinkable. He said, I never knew him. He's deserted Jesus. And, and how does Jesus see Peter? Well, even before anybody deserts Jesus, up in that upper room, Jesus had said to Peter, Peter, I have been praying for you. And Jesus speaks about his return, which is to say that Jesus knew Peter would do the unthinkable. Jesus knew that he would receive him back when he came back. And Jesus knew that that's, in fact, why Jesus came. To die on the cross for all of us who have done the unthinkable and to let us know that the unthinkable in our past, even in our present and future, does not define who we are, but his grace defines who we are. And so in that moment, when Jesus restores Peter, what he has done is restored him to a new way of seeing himself. He's given him a new identity that's not rooted in the way Peter sees himself or the way the disciples see himself or the way that anybody else sees Peter except Jesus. And that's why Peter says in verse 13 here, set your hope, set all of your hope. Did you catch that? on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring when he is revealed. Verse 13, set all of your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring. So you're secured by grace. That's what Peter discovered. And this is the way Jesus always saw people through grace. Remember the, the, the time that Simon is having lunch and there's this woman and Simon can only see her as a sinner in the city and she's trying to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and, and he says, if you knew what kind of a woman, he's thinking to himself, what kind of a woman she was, then you wouldn't let her touch. But you know what? Jesus knows more than Simon knows about what kind of woman she is because Jesus loves all of her and he knows she's responding to that love. Same thing with the story he tells about the, the publican or the sinner and the Pharisee. And he says, this one, the, the one who can barely even raise his eyes to heaven, uh, who's clutching his breast in utter humility, but who throws himself on the mercy of God. This one, Jesus says, goes home justified because he's begun to see himself the way I see him. That's that new identity. Here's what David Benner says, back, back to the same guy. He says, Christian spirituality involves acknowledging all our part selves. 
exposing them to God's love and letting him weave them into the new person he's making. To do this, we must be willing to welcome these ignored parts as full members of the family of self, giving them space, I love this, at the family table and slowly allowing them to be softened and healed by love and integrated into the whole person we are becoming. Now that is authenticity. And it comes from grace. And grace comes from Jesus. Marshall Linneman tells a story. This, here's, here's a great testimony. This, I don't totally relate to this, but the New York Times did this article about this. She's a scientist, but she has a mystical story to tell. This was her turning point, she tells the New York Times. She was in her mid-20s living in Chicago at the YMCA. She found herself in a chapel one evening, and she says, one night I was kneeling in there looking up at the cross, the cross, and the whole place became gold. And suddenly I felt something coming toward me. It was this shimmering experience, and I just ran back to my room and said, I love myself. It was the first time I remember talking to myself in the first person. Wow. I felt transformed. Jesus will do that for you and for me. I don't know if he'll make the room gold. He might for you. He's never done that for me. But we can know who we are simply by faith in the promises of Scripture that portray for us the grace of God in Jesus Christ. By faith. You can know who you are. See through Jesus' eyes by faith. And then you can be authentic. Grace opens you to accept who you are. So, when you're secured by grace, you can begin to open your life. Now, let's look at the second movement here. Uh, uh, first, we we're talking about a way to see yourself. Now, we're going to talk about a way to relate to your neighbor. And, and Peter, I think, is commending his readers to what I would call a lifestyle of openness. And here comes the practice. See, because the question is, how can I get the way I think about myself to become visible to you and to others? How can the way I see my new identity in Jesus Christ be reflected in the way that I live my life? Remember, Peter's talking about girding your life for action, girding your mind for action. That is, it has to lead you into engagement with the people around you, or it's no good at all. The way that Peter talks about this new lifestyle is translated in verse 15 with our word conduct. Do you see that there? He says, um, instead, as, as he who called you is holy, that's Jesus, be holy yourselves in all of your conduct. Um, that word there could be translated as lifestyle or way of life. And it's going to come up three other times in these two paragraphs. For example, in verse 17, we get the verbal form where he says, live in reverent fear. That's that same way of life, lifestyle. In verse 18, where he says, he talks about feudal ways, that's our same word there, feudal conduct or feudal, feudal lifestyle. It's actually a word that Peter used quite a bit. It's a word that has great impact in his mind on neighbors. We'll talk about that in a second. But what is it? What is the lifestyle? What is the conduct? Well, I think the best way to understand that is contextually through this paragraph, looking at verse 18, where he's, Peter says, You know that you were ransomed from your feudal ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold. And so ask Peter, what for you would be feudal ways? Or as the NIV translates, and I think this is helpful, empty way of life. What was the empty way of life for you? Well, remember Peter's story. I think it was any way of life that was not centered on the grace of Jesus Christ. That whole way of life that centered on my own accomplishments or the way I tried to see myself or wished I could be seen by others, that's empty. 
That's not real. It's futile. It's vain. It's vacuous. And he's, he's already made that case. Set your hope, all of your hope, on the grace that Jesus... Now, I think that the conduct, the, the lifestyle of openness he's commending is one that centers on the, on, on the grace of Jesus Christ. It's not something that, as our forebearers might have led us to believe, centers on silver or gold, as he said. These are perishable things, silver or gold. They're great, but they're not enduring. They're not substantial. They're not real for all of eternity. So don't attach your identity to anything that has an expiration date. There's a lot of good stuff in your life, but it's going to expire. The silver, gold, accolades, approval, popularity, health, wealth, all of that stuff is good stuff, but it's going to go away, and it will ultimately disappoint you if you root your identity in it. But the grace of Jesus Christ will one day be revealed for all people. And if that's where you're living... And you'll have great joy, joy inexpressible, he said earlier. My lifestyle should reflect my new identity. So this is what holiness is. We get holiness wrong. Holiness is not really about how many things you get right or wrong in life. Holiness is about being centered in Jesus Christ. Holiness is about, not about your righteousness at all or how good you are. It's about how Jesus becomes visible in and through you. And this is an authentic lifestyle that shares hope because it reflects grace, his grace. So here's the question I've been wrestling with this week. What can I do that would help my neighbor unravel his or her mental processes that keep them from grace? What can I do that would help my neighbor unravel the mental processes that inhibit their experience of Jesus Christ's grace? And I think here at this point, Peter knows your neighbor maybe even better than you do. Because Peter's been there. Because this is his story. He knows how hard it is to center our lives on grace. Came across a story this week about a three-year-old boy whose dad was inviting him to the auto show. And dad said this, but you'll have to promise me one thing, that as soon as we get there, you won't start complaining that you're thirsty or hungry or want a hot dog or that you're tired and want me to carry you. This will be a fun day. No complaints. And then the three-year-old boy sits there thoughtfully for a minute, and then he says, I don't want to go. (laughs) And dad says, what do you mean you don't want to go? You love cars and trucks. But the boy responded, it's not my nature not to complain. (laughs) See how he sees himself. And then more seriously, uh, Johnny Depp this summer told Rolling Stone magazine, covering myself up in makeup, it's easier to look at someone else. Think about that for a second. Covering myself up in makeup, it's easier to look at someone else. It's easier to look at someone else's face than your own. I think for everyone, you wake up in the morning, you brush your teeth, and you're like, oh, that idiot, I put that in quotes because that's not what he told Rolling Stones, that idiot again, you're still here, what do you want? And then he says, hiding, I think it's important. It's important for you, for whatever's left of your sanity, I guess. Now again, nothing wrong with privacy. But hiding because you have to hide, because you don't dare be authentic, that is slavery. And what can we do to unravel that kind of thinking? Well, here's the mistake we make. We think that if we're just good people and live out a good life in front of other people, we'll draw them to Jesus. And I want to challenge that. I want you to think about that. To me, that's a health and wealth lifestyle. 
Now, I don't think there's anyone in here who has a health and wealth gospel. Why would we think that by being a really, really successful, healthy, beautiful, good-looking follower of Jesus, everyone will go, well, I want that too. I don't think they will. I think at best, if you were really even able to be that kind of a person, you'd probably lead them more to become uh, a Muslim or a Jehovah's Witness or somebody whose lives really are really good, that don't know a lot about grace. I mean, let me tell you two things about your neighbors. They're either really impressed with you or they're really depressed by you. Right? They're really impressed with, they think of Cindy, they think of, wow, that's Cindy, I'm impressed with her. She's a great person. They look up to you, and because they look up to you, they say to themselves, I'm not one of them. And you have nothing to offer them at that point. Or they're depressed by you, because they look at your way of life, and they don't see it as consistent with the grace of Jesus Christ, and they say, oh my gosh, I just see right through them. And when they do, they see it as hypocrisy, and they know, I'm not one of them, and you're not one, of, and I don't want. And then you have nothing to offer them either. So Peter is commending us to a lifestyle in which grace becomes visible, not our self-righteousness, but his grace. I want to ask you, what does that look like? What does a lifestyle of openness centered on grace look like? And what can we practice? Well, first of all, let me give you the knots. I'm going to give you three authenticity fouls. And I'm moving here to the, to the practical. And there are three things you shouldn't do. The first authenticity foul is the overshare. Uh, that's where you share too much about yourself. Let's put the Johari window back up on the screen. This is a process. M- moving from um, uh, the open window into the blind or into the hidden w- window, this is a process. And it's always dependent on the depth of a relationship. So the overshare is a foul. Another share is the undervalue. And, and um, you know, so many times when people think they're being authentic, they just say negative stuff about them. They just parade their dirty laundry or their shame. And I want to tell you, that, that doesn't communicate anything about grace. If you undervalue yourself, that's just about your garbage. Well, how has Jesus redeemed your garbage? What does it look like to place your garbage in his hands and know that you're loved, even in that space? And then the third authenticity foul is the overinterpret. That's where you give somebody else too much power over you. In, when they tell you something. And you have to develop a thick skin. You have to develop the capacity to say, you must be confusing me with somebody who cares uh, sometimes when you get feedback. Because they may see you very, very differently than how Jesus sees you. Those are the fouls. But let me now give you the two p- postures of authentic practice for this week. And I want to encourage you to pick one of these two and try it out this week. Looking at the Johari window, you can see two directions in which you can move to open the window, to open yourself to the people around you. One direction is you can move from the open box down into the hidden box. That's what I call disclosure. That's the first of these two postures, disclosure. Let me tell you something about myself. You might tell your pain. You might tell something that God has forgiven you for. You might tell a way of life that that you've discovered because of Jesus' grace. It's only possible because of that. Let me tell you something about myself. That's disclosure. That's a posture of authenticity. The other one is by going to the right, moving from uh, the open space into the blind space. And this a lot of people don't think about. This is what I call feedback, soliciting feedback. One of the most honorable things you can do with your neighbor is to ask them how they see you. After you give a presentation, uh, you might have thought it was great, but you might turn to somebody else, a coworker, and say, can you tell me how you experienced that? Or if you want to be really bold, Ask a family member, how do you experience me in this family? <laughs> you know, so you're soliciting feedback. 
Now, in, in either of these ways, wow, it's really impressive to people. When they see somebody who's got the freedom to be that open and vulnerable, it strikes them that there is an authenticity here that is rooted in something that they don't understand. And it's rooted, it's because it's rooted in grace. Because you know that Jesus sees through all of these boxes. And he accepts all that you are. And he invites the whole family of your part selves to him. So you're secure and you can take this risk. When you open your life, you can open your hope. That's what I've been trying to say. As Brene Brown puts it, the two most powerful words in the English language, me too. You are one of them. They are one of us. So think, just as I close, about the people in your life. Who's there? Who needs you to open a window on grace for them? I'm hoping the Holy Spirit will bring a name or a face to your mind. Who's there? And then what can you do? How can you open your life another degree to them? What would disclosure look like? What would seeking feedback look like? Recently, I visited one of the great saints of this church, and I got to tell you, I was a little intimidated by it. Uh, I'd met her before, and she's a delightful person, but I knew her reputation was her wisdom, her spirituality. It's like she lives with Jesus and I was a little intimidated by that. What would she say to me, the skinny little white pastor guy? You know, come in, what do I have to offer? You know, would she expose me? Uh, and so I was nervous. But you know what? As soon as I sat down with her, all of that went away because she was authentic with me. She opened herself up to me. I asked her, what's been going on? How have you been doing? And she said, George, I've been having good days and bad days. And she told me a little bit about some of the bad days. And I thought, you have bad days too? You have bad days? And she did. She said, you know, I'm really struggling at night. I lie in bed a lot, alone and awake. And she said, you know what I do when I'm awake at night? She said, I think about Christmas. This is recently. I thought, Christmas? You think about Christmas? She says, yeah, you remember what they said Jesus' name was? Emmanuel. It means God with us. She says, when I'm lying awake at night, I take my finger. She showed me with her finger, and she said, I write on my leg, Emmanuel, over and over and over again, because God's with me. And you know how I left that place? I left that place with so much hope, because there are moments in my life where I desperately need to know that God is with me. There are moments in my life when I need to take comfort in the fact that God became one of us, to sit there with us and be real with us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you love us with a wild abandon. You recklessly love all that we are, even the parts we dare not look at. Thank you for the freedom that that grace brings into our life and even into this world we want to live out of that grace. And so believing that you are present to us through your Holy Spirit, we ask you this week, each of us, that you would give us an opportunity to set our hope on your grace and to open ourselves up just a little bit to somebody else who needs convincing that grace is real. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, Visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette.
To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.